Welcome to the House Church Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message by guest pastor Tim Barton. If you would like to know more about the house, please visit our website at welcometothehouse.com or download the house app. Uh, I'm excited to be with you guys. We've known the sections a long time. We love them. We're glad to be in the house. Um, awesome to see what God's doing in, in this ministry and you guys are a part of it. Um, he mentioned our organization is called Wall Builders. Uh, it has nothing to do with the southern border. We don't build walls. Um, <laughs> We, it actually is from the Bible book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah looked at the walls of Jerusalem that had been torn down, and he said, let us go rebuild the walls that we may no longer be a reproach to the people. And years ago, we looked at our nation, and we saw a lot of the, the, the religious, the moral walls being torn down, and we said, we, we want to do something. It actually led to us studying a lot of history, but we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And as we look at our nation, I have a lot of slides on the side. As we look at our nation, uh, we recently celebrated a birthday. Uh, it was kind of a special day for us. And actually, what was cool is that we set a new world's record this summer. Uh, we actually do that almost every summer, but it's because for 242 years, we've been a nation. Most nations average a constitution, the world average of constitutions is every 17 years. We've only had one, and it's a little older than 17 years. So let me just back up and, and, and unfold a few things that maybe we just have forgotten from fifth grade history class. So there actually, in 1776, there were 56 men who actually signed the Declaration of Independence. This is when we broke away from the king. And this is when the Declaration is like the, the most famous breakup letter of all times. Um, it's not us, it's you. Here's 27 problems you have, and that's why we're leaving. Um, that's kind of what this was. And what's interesting is, is the Declaration actually was written by a 33-year-old Thomas Jefferson. And I remember as a young person thinking that 33-year-olds were old and really smart. And, and then I turned 33, and I realized it's neither that old nor are we that smart. So this is actually really impressive coming from a 33-year-old. And actually, let me, let me read you a, a little bit of it. I think you're going to recognize these phrases. But he says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these Right? Governments instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. Now, let me point out, he starts off this phrase by a declaration that we hold these truths to be self-evident. This is already significant because in our culture, we're battling over if truth even exists. Right? Well, who gets to determine? Well, how do we know? Well, this is what I think. We're not even sure. In fact, the majority of Americans, over 67% of Americans don't think truth exists. 80% of millennials believe there is no absolute moral truth, okay? It's even worse the younger you get, which can, can I just pause for a second? Okay, this is a pet peeve. Um, not all evils in the world are because of millennials, okay? I just want to clarify. Um, we also did not teach ourselves all of the bad things we do. So I don't know where that goes, but I just, right, like, okay, let's be honest for a second. However, we live in a culture that doesn't know about truth anymore, and yet the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson said, there's a few things we know to be true. We know that we are all created equal. We know that we have rights that come from God. We know that government exists to secure those rights, and that is what the purpose and function should be. Here's what's crazy, though. He doesn't just say those are truths. That top line again, he says we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident means obvious. It means very clear. But who was it clear to? 
because it wasn't clear to the king we're separating from. And by the way, it wasn't clear to any other European nation at the time, any other Asian nation, African nation. It's not even clear to nations today. You think today in India, they believe all people are equal? Nope. They don't believe they have rights that come from God. They think the government dictates rights. Do you think in Saudi Arabia, all people are equal? I mean, let's be honest. If this is self-evident, why doesn't the entire world know it? I mean, this is kind of an interesting question. So, so how, could, how could the founding fathers say this is self-evident? Do you know in all the research I've done, I've only found one place where you could argue that, that it's self-evident from that one place. The only place it's self-evident from is actually the Bible. Do you know nowhere else is it self-evident? But if you read the Bible, do you know what becomes self-evident? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says that we were all created in God's image. Male and female, we were made in his image. Which, just to clarify, that actually kind of solves some of that gender debate. He made two, not 314 that you can find on social media today. No, no, it's just a little less. It's only two. But you know what's interesting about it? Do you know what the Bible does not tell us? What shape or size or color they were. It doesn't tell us what ethnicity. It, that doesn't matter. We all are God's kids, regardless of shape, size, and color. We've all been created equal. See, that's self-evident if you know the Bible. It's not self-evident anywhere else. By the way, the idea that we have rights that come from God, think about the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed life and liberty and had the pursuit of happiness. Where else did we find that self-evident? See, it's from the Bible that things are self-evident, at least when it comes to this doctrine of the Declaration. And by the way, even the idea that government exists to protect our rights. Do you know when, when, when Noah landed the ark on Mount Ararat, Genesis chapter 9, it says that God established with him a covenant. It was, became known as the, the Noahic covenant, also where the Noahide laws come from. And the Noahide laws, the very first law that God gives to Noah about the way that the world will now operate, he says, if man sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed. What God says is if there's a murderer, then you're going to eliminate the murderer. Why? Because God says we're going to protect the right to life. The first government ordinance was to protect the rights God had given to man. See, this is when you start looking through the Bible. It is self-evident in the Bible, but I would argue it's not self-evident anywhere else. If you don't know the Bible, this is not self-evident truth. But if you know the Bible, no, I can totally see that. And, And so if we look at the Declaration, a lot of the question today would be, wait a second. Can we really say these guys were influenced by the Bible? Well, let me just back you up just a couple decades. So Clinton Rossiter was a professor at Cornell University. He actually was the head of the history department at Cornell. In 1953, he wrote a book called The Seed Time of the Republic. In this book, he outlines where the thoughts for the the founding of America came from. And he said there were six major influencers that gave us the thoughts we did and what we established in America. He said, of those six people, you have Benjamin Franklin, Richard Bland, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, the Reverend Roger Williams, the Reverend John Wise, and the Reverend Jonathan Mayhew. Now, of that list, only two of them were politicians. Four of them are ministers. Now, why could this professor say that that these are the guys who gave us these thoughts and ideas? Well, let me just give you one easy example, John Wise. The Reverend John Wise was a pastor in the late 1600s, the early 1700s. He had many published sermons. In fact, one of his book of sermons came out in 1717. Now, 1717 is a long time before the Declaration, But let me just first point out what he said in this book of sermons. He preached 
a sermon where he said that taxation without representation is tyranny. He preached a sermon where he said that God's preferred form of government is the consent of the governed. He preached another sermon where he said that all men are created equal and have certain rights that come from God. If you read the Declaration, all of those phrases are in the Declaration, right? By the way, there's even more. Now, this came out in 1717, but it actually was republished in 1772. Why was it republished? It actually was republished by the Sons of Liberty. If you remember the Boston Tea Party, Sons of Liberty, it's those guys. Why would they republish these sermons? Because many leaders of the Sons of Liberty recognized that we have rights from God and, and the king doesn't recognize it and people need to know what the Bible says. And they said, well, who said it the best? They said, well, well Reverend Wise had some really good sermons on this. Let's reprint his sermons. And they did. So in 1776, when it's time to do the declaration, these books have been distributed all over the colonies. The founding fathers come together and they write verbatim his sermons into the declaration. In fact, historians identified this. Historian B.F. Morris, 1864, says some of the most glittering sentences in the immortal declaration of independence are almost literal quotations from this essay of John Wise. It was used as a political textbook in the great struggle for freedom. Now, I don't remember learning in history growing up in school, right, that, that it was shaped by pastors. Well, let me give you another thought. Calvin Coolidge, I think probably one of the most underrated presidents. He really was a pretty phenomenal guy. On the 150th anniversary of the Declaration, he went to Independence Hall and he gave a speech on the Declaration and he talked about John Wise. And here's what he said about John Wise. The thoughts in the Declaration can very largely be traced back to what John Wise was writing. Here was the doctrine of equality, of popular sovereignty and inalienable rights asserted by Wise. Now, this is 150 years later, we still could point back and say, no, no, the ideas we had in the Declaration, they were from a pastor. Now, how in the world could we say today they're from a pastor? Well, he's one of the guys who in 1772 had those sermons reprinted. This is Sam Adams. And Sam Adams was known as the father of the American Revolution. Contrary to today, where he's mostly known as the beer guy, right? He actually was even more important than that, right? He was the guy considered responsible for the whole revolution in the first place. He was one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty. So he's one of the guys in charge of distributing these sermons to the other patriots so they can see what the Bible says. Well, one of the things he was asked, why do you guys think what you think? And he wrote a letter back explaining why they believed what they believe. Here's what he said in this letter. He said, the rights of the colonists as Christians may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institute of the great lawgiver and the head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. Now, what he's explaining is if you want to know where we think our rights come from, what we believe about this, the best thing to do is study Jesus. And you study Jesus the best by reading the New Testament. Wow. Okay. That's, by the way, that's a pretty good thing to do anyway, right? Like study Jesus, read the New Testament. That's a good thing to do. But what's interesting is today, we've never heard that any of the founding fathers, at least not in our, our modern history books, we don't hear that these guys were religious. And by the way, the, the accusations usually used is that, well, these guys, they were just bad guys and, and they weren't religious and they were racist. And there's all these things thrown against them. Now, some of them weren't good guys. Some of them had problems. Actually, let me back up. All of them had problems, right? But if we start looking around the room, right? Do you know this? Here's one of the funny things. When people look at American history, 
they, they think a lot of bad things sometimes about America. And, and, and I just want to stop and point out, wait a second, you understand that every nation in the history of the world has had problems? I mean, can we be honest? And, and do you know there's only one fundamental reason every nation in the history of the world has had problems? Because <sighs> they had people. <laughs> I mean, there was a reason Jesus came, right? If we were good enough, he wouldn't need to come. No, he came because all have sinned, right? So, so you're not going to surprise me by saying, hey, some of those guys were bad. Yeah, you're right. In fact, I probably know even better than you do. I can point them out to you, right? That, that's, that's not going to surprise me. However, it also is something, as I study history, that many of these guys actually use the Bible as the guidebook for their life and what they did. And this is today... We actually learn history in broad generalizations, and we don't learn very much about individuals. When you start looking at individuals, just for example, if we took an individual, I know we know his name, John Adams, okay? Do you know that John Adams actually was a very religious guy, Christian, and considered himself his whole life? Here's what he said about the Bible. He says that the Bible, I've examined all religions, and the result is that the Bible is the best book in the world. Now, that's interesting. Because he also says, I've examined all religions, which means he didn't just become a Christian because it felt good. He said, no, I have looked at everything. Nothing else makes sense. The one thing that makes sense is the Bible. It's very interesting because if you study world religions, not everybody thinks the same, right? Which is even like if you see those bumper stickers, maybe you have them. I don't mean to offend you, but I'm about to. So <laughs> if you have the bumper sticker that says coexist, the coexist bumper sticker is so silly to me. Who wants to coexist? Christians. Do Muslims want to coexist in the Middle East? No. Guys, this is why it's so silly. See, he says, I've looked at all religions and nothing compares to the Bible. Do you know there's no other religion that says do unto others as you would have them do unto you? It's known as the golden rule. Nobody else has. We can go through a lot of things. See, the Bible teaches, by the way, the Bible teaches about Jesus too, and he's different from other religions, right? But, but the Bible is different, but he continued and said, you know, I, I think we ought to get back to the Bible. Here's what he said about it. He says, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. So if we said, let's only do what the Bible says, we're going to have a new nation, and we only do what the Bible says, he says, if that ever happened, what a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? Wow. Could we agree with that? Yeah. Right? I mean, if, if we could just get people to follow the Bible, right? It would be so different in life. This is what he said. He said people should just follow the Bible. Well, his son, John Quincy Adams, went on to become the sixth president of the United States. He actually talked about what it was like in America at that time. And here's what he said about the Bible. He said, with regard to the history contained in the Bible, it's not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. Wow. Wow. Now, wait a second. How could we ever say it's not praiseworthy to know the Bible? Right? Like if somebody gets up and they know the Bible, if you could get up and quote the entire book of James, I'd be like, you are awesome. Because that is cool. Right? It, it's impressive to know the Bible. So why would he say it's not impressive to know the Bible? Because it would be the same thing if I said, what is two plus two? And you said four. It's not impressive to know what should be obvious to everybody. Wow. So why would it be shameful not to know it? Because it's shameful not to know what should be obvious to everybody. This is interesting. Because he's talking about the culture he grew up in now. If we're going to be specific, what culture did he grow up in? Well, let's back up to mom and dad. 
right? This is the environment he grows up in. Well, he grows up in the middle of the revolution. And in the revolution, John Adams is over in Europe. And, and John Adams is our top diplomat. He's doing all kinds of things in Europe. And so at this point, Abigail is basically like a single parent, mom, home raising, doing, because dad's gone. So she's having it, which by the way, she was an amazing woman. I mean, really impressive. But one of the cool things is the church where they're from is, is actually in Quincy, Massachusetts. And outside of the church, there's actually a statue that was built. And the statue is of Abigail and John Quincy Adams. The reason was, is she was known to bring her church or her son to church every single Sunday. And this is interesting to me because I, I think kind of modern American culture, um, we oftentimes look for a good excuse to not go to church. And I feel like if anybody had a good excuse, right, when you're like, you know what, dad's in Europe, let's just stay home today. And mom's like, I don't care where dad is, you get your butt up, we're going to church. Right, like, I, I just feel like that's kind of an interesting thing. But, so they're known for going to church. What's interesting, though, is in the midst of his growing up, he grew up with their family very involved in the revolution. And when he was eight years old, the Massachusetts Minutemen used to practice and do their drills in front of John Adams' house. When John Quincy Adams was eight years old, his dad gave him a musket and let him go practice with the Massachusetts Minutemen. Now, I would have given him the father of the year of the war at that moment, right? Like, dad, you're the coolest guy ever. If, right, I mean, like, I grew up with a single shot bolt action 22 when I was a kid. But if my dad would have said, okay, I've just signed you up to go train with the Navy SEALs, like, dude, that would have been the coolest thing ever, right? Like, I would have felt so cool. He gets to do that when he's 11 years old. He gets to go with his dad over to Europe. And actually, as he's going, apparently, he was supposed to write his mom and let his mom know that he arrived safely. Like, it's before texting, so he couldn't text, I'm here, right? So he was supposed to write her a letter. Now, we don't know if he forgot to write a letter or if the letter didn't get to him. What we do know is that Abigail never got the letter. And so she writes a letter to her son, who's just an 11-year-old over in Europe. And the letter basically starts off with, I'm not sure if you're alive, but if you are, you're in trouble. <laughs> right? Because you were supposed to let me know. Well, she then instructs him on the way he should behave while he's in Europe. Here's what she wrote to him. She says, adhere to those religious sentiments and principles which were early instilled into your mind. And remember, you are accountable to your maker for all your words and actions. Now, not only is she recognizing that there's a God and you're accountable to him for what we do. This is like the ultimate mom card of like, look, I'm not there, but God is watching you. <laughs> right? You could just know. Yeah, you go with your friends. God is watching. Like, I didn't realize it was this old. Right? Like, apparently, the beginning of America, we still did this. So... She continues in this letter. She says, dear as you are to me, I had much rather you should find your grave in the ocean or an untimely death crop you in your infant years rather than see you an immoral, wicked, or graceless child. Okay, pause. I would rather you drown in the ocean, love mom. <laughs> How in the world... You know what, what I, I thought of when I read this is it reminded me of Proverbs 22, 6. It says, train up a child in the way they should go. When they're old, they won't depart from it. She is training something into his mind. And what she's training is an eternal perspective, right? Son, it would be so much better that you died a young person serving the Lord because you were eternally secure. As opposed to you live a really long life here, but you've rejected faith and you've gone and done everything you wanted to do, but you eternally pay for it. 
This is an amazing perspective that he has given. Well, so, so let's back up. So when he's 11, he doesn't just go with his dad to Europe. He actually received a congressional appointment to be the official secretary to the diplomat, who was his father, but he got congressional permission. Now, it's also interesting because he was considered a secretary, which means he has to take notes. I don't know if you've seen an 11-year-old's handwriting recently. Like, that's interesting to take the notes from an 11-year-old, but uh, he did it when he was 16. He received a second congressional appointment. Did I offend you? I apologize. Your notes are awesome. You're so good. Okay. <laughs> he received a second congressional appointment, and he went before the throne of Catherine the Great in Russia. This time, he wasn't the secretary for somebody. He was part of the diplomatic team. His job as a 16-year-old was to be the translator. Because as a 16-year-old, he was already fluent in six languages. It's not bad for a 16-year-old, right? I mean, it's okay. You keep working, you might accomplish something in life, right? Well, he did. He kept, his resume gets more impressive. Uh, he actually, when we become a nation under President George Washington, he is America's top diplomat. George Washington says that he's the best diplomat America ever had. Now, this is way after the revolution, many, many years later. So at this point, he's actually married and has kids of his own. So he, it's almost like what his father did when he was young. His father goes overseas and the family's at home. He is now overseas and his family's at home. And he starts writing his son letters. He said, son, there's some things that you have to know very important in your life. He wrote his son nine letters. And the nine letters he wrote were all about how to study the Bible and the importance of studying the Bible and what to look for when you read the Bible. And when you read this book, here's what it's about. And this book's, I mean, it's kind of like an Old Testament, New Testament survey is what he's writing his son in these nine letters. But let me read you part of what he told his son. He says, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. I have myself for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. Now, that actually was a pretty common practice in early America. It was very common for people to spend time in the Bible. Actually, every year they would read the Bible. Well, here's what he tells his 10-year-old son. My custom is to read it four or five chapters every morning, immediately after rising from my bed. It employs about an hour of my time and seems to me the most suitable manner of beginning the day. He says he spends an hour now, that's a long time. And he says he reads four, maybe five chapters. If it takes you an hour to read four or five chapters, you're not a very good reader, right? Like, you should work on that. Well, he actually was a good reader. We have one of his journals where he talks about what he did for that hour in the morning. And in his journal, he says, well, I read the French translation this morning, and they did a really good job translating this verse. But the Russians did an even better job with this verse. But in Latin, I think it actually captures... He read in five languages and compared them all back to the original Greek. I mean, I feel good if I just read the English Bible in the morning, right? Like, I haven't even gotten there. But here's what he tells his son. I've always endeavored to read it with the same spirit, which I now recommend to you. So he's telling his son, this is the reason we read the Bible. Here's what he says. That is with the intention and desire that may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. This is interesting. Because he doesn't say this is spiritually what we're supposed to do, right? Check that off the list or it makes you, will spiritually edify you. Although it, I mean, that it will. But he says it's two things, your wisdom and your virtue. Wisdom deals with the way we think and virtue deals with the way we live. Why should you read the Bible every day? To make sure every morning that you have the mind of Christ all day long. Right? That I'm not thinking my flesh thoughts, I'm thinking the God thoughts in this moment. Because right now my flesh thoughts are here, but I got no, the God thoughts, right? Yeah. 
and to make sure, virtue, that I'm living the life God's called me to live. I mean, this is kind of an amazing thought, but this is what he tells his 10-year-old son. Well, this is when he was a diplomat under George Washington. Then his father becomes president. He's a diplomat under his father. Then under Thomas Jefferson, he becomes a U.S. senator. Then under James Madison, he again is a diplomat for America. Then under Monroe, he becomes the secretary of state. He then becomes the sixth president of the United States. He has like the most impressive resume ever. He's done everything, been a part of everything, except after being president, he did what no other president has ever done. He went from being president and he went and served in Congress. Now, if you've been president and then you go serve in Congress, that's like starter on varsity to going and playing JV. Right? That's the wrong direction, right? But he says there's a great evil in America that must be remedied. The evil was slavery. He became the leader of the anti-slavery movement in the House, said we have to end slavery in America. He became known as the hellhound of abolition because he locked onto this issue and wasn't going to let it go. What's interesting is that in the midst of him being there, he's the guy that actually, if you've heard of the Amistad case, they actually made a movie about this. There was a, a, a group of Africans that were kidnapped from Africa, brought to America. The slave trade was already illegal. So there's lots of problems. He argues it before the U.S. Supreme Court, wins a unanimous decision, and the Supreme Court says the Navy is going to put them on a ship and we will take them anywhere in the world they want to go because we never should have done it. The slave trade was wrong. Well, he did this at a time when slavery was even still legal in America. It's kind of a big deal. He actually filibustered. When Texas was coming to enter the Union, he filibustered to keep Texas from entering because he says, we don't need another slaveholding state. We're trying to get rid of slavery in America. We don't need more slaves in America. He actually, on, on Mondays, they could bring and present new issues. And so he actually, as a leader of the anti-slavery movement, would come and present anti-slavery petitions. One day he brought 900 anti-slavery petitions. This was in a pro-slavery Congress. So he's like the least popular guy ever in this Congress because he keeps fighting to, for something to happen. What was interesting is he served for 17 years fighting to try to end slavery, and it never ended in his watch, but he fought his whole life. A reporter came to him one day and said, Mr. Adams, you fought your entire life against slavery. It's never worked. How can you keep fighting for something when you've never been successful at it? Now, that's kind of a demoralizing question. Like, oh, I am a loser, right? Like, this is kind of sad, except it's not the way he thought. His response was based on his life motto, and this is what he said. He said, duty is ours, results are God's. It's up to me to do the right thing. It's up to God what happens after that. Now, let me point out, it's even interesting if you study the scripture. Do you know Jesus never once called you to be successful? He called you to be faithful. Now, faithfulness will often breed success, right? You've got to be faithful in the little, you're a ruler over much. However... This was his life, and this is a guy whose entire life was shaped by the Bible, was shaped by his faith, and this is the why I love looking at history to see some of these guys. In fact, one of my favorite examples is President Dwight Eisenhower. Now, Dwight Eisenhower, actually, one of my favorite parts of his story starts when he was just a kid, when he and his family were growing up in, in actually Kansas. That's him on the left. He's only 12 in this picture. When he was 13, he was running on their family farm. He fell down, scraped his knee. His knee actually got infected. Now, he didn't tell his mom and dad because he was trying to be tough. He's a 13-year-old kid, no big deal, shake it off. Except, as it got infected, he went the entire week and didn't say anything. Well, Sunday, his mom said, okay, time to get ready for church. He's putting on his pants, but he just feels awful. Starts moaning and groaning. Mom comes in and says, hey, what's wrong? We're going to church. I don't feel good. I can't go. She agrees to let him stay home. The family goes to church. 
the, the, his brothers come home after Sunday school. Mom and dad are gone all day. When they get home that night, she goes to check on him. He was running a fever and was unconscious in his bed. She realizes this is a problem. She yells at her husband, go get the doctor. He goes to town, comes back with Dr. Conklin, and they start trying to find out what's wrong. They realize his leg is really, really swollen, so they go to pull his boot off, except his foot's so swollen, they can't even get his boot off. They have to cut his boot off. They have to cut his pants open, and as they do, they see black and purple on his knee, and it's going up his thigh into his body. The doctor says if that infection gets into his body, he will die. So... I think I can save him if I amputate his leg. Mom and dad say, well, if it's going to save him, do what you need to do. So he says, okay, I'm going to run to town. I'm going to get my saw, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to cut off his leg. (laughs) Dwight woke up long enough to hear the doctor say, I'm going to go get a saw, and we'll cut off his leg. And Dwight's like, no, right? We ain't doing that. Dwight screams for his older brother, Edgar. says, Edgar, you got to get in here. Edgar comes in. Dwight is freaking out. In the midst of their conversation, Edgar's trying to explain to Dwight what's going on. Dwight says, I don't care. I'd rather die than lose my leg. Dwight makes Edgar promise at the end of their conversation that Edgar will not let the doctor take his leg because he would rather die than lose his leg. Older brother says, okay, I won't let him take your leg. Doc Conklin comes back, medical bag, got a saw. He walks to the room and Edgar stands in the door frame and blocks the door. The doctor says, Edgar, get out of the way. I got to get to your brother. He says, sorry, doc. I gave my word. You can't go in. This is kind of silly. Like, kid, get out of the way. The doctor says, Edgar, your brother's dying. I can save him. You have to move. Sorry, doc. I gave my word. This goes back and forth. Edgar will not get out of the way. The doctor starts screaming and yelling, get out of the way. By the way, somewhere along the way, mom and dad hear Dwight in the room yelling, I would rather die than lose my leg. And mom and dad are like, okay, if he wants to die and lose his leg. Mom and dad, even like, they don't even stop it. They're like, well, he chose. We're just going to let him go with it. Okay, different problems. Nonetheless, the story continues. So the doctor cannot get in to see him. So he turns away in disgust, throws up his hand, says the only thing that will save this boy's life now is a miracle. When he said miracle, it was like the light bulb goes off for mom and dad. They'd just been at church that morning. They said, we ought to pray. So mom, dad, and older brother pray. In fact, over the next week, all the brothers, all the family, they're taking turns praying over Dwight. At the end of a couple days, the swelling in his leg starts to go down. At the end of the week, the discoloration, the infection is going back down. At the end of two weeks, there's no swelling. There's no discoloration, no infection. He's back up on his feet, running around like normal, and is just begging his mom to go back to school to play football because he doesn't want to miss the rest of the season. Maybe we can relate a little bit, right? So his mom says, you know what? We're going to keep you out of the year. We're going to make sure you're okay. He stays out the year, but here's what's interesting. If he had lost his leg, you know he never could have entered the military. And if he didn't enter the military, you know D-Day might have looked a little different. Because he was the commander of all of the allied forces. He's the guy in charge of D-Day. Had God not done a miracle in his life, right, the entire world might look different today. Well, after the war, he becomes president. As president, he starts looking at the nation and he says, you know, I'm a little afraid for America. He says, I I think America is becoming too secular. He says, I want to help America remember God and get their attention back to God. He says, so at my inauguration... 
I'm going to help remind people of who God is. So at his inauguration, he actually leads his own prayer and asks everybody to join him. In fact, you guys watch just a piece of this clip. Uh, this is off YouTube. Friends, before I begin the expression of those thoughts that I deem appropriate uh, to this moment, would you permit me the privilege of uttering a little private prayer of my own? And I ask that you bow your heads. Almighty God, as we stand here at this moment, he goes on for about a minute and a half. You can watch the link on YouTube if you want to. But the point was, he says, I want people to remember God. That's actually the prayer he was praying. That's one of the things we have in our Wall Builders collection. Uh, we have over 100,000 documents from even before 1812, the founding fathers era. So we have a lot of this stuff, really cool, that highlights some of the religious aspect. But, but Dwight wasn't done. Because he says we need to do more. So he's the guy that actually starts the National Prayer Breakfast. Every single year, there's a National Prayer Breakfast. The president goes, Congress goes, world leaders come together, and they pray. Once a year, we do this. He's the guy who actually attended a church service. At the church service, the pastor preached this sermon. It's titled, Under God. The reason the pastor preached this sermon is he said he had just talked to his son, who had come home from school, and his son was explaining what the pledge was. And he heard the pledge... And the pledge at that time says, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for just hands, one nation, indivisible, liberty, and justice for all. And he said, why in the world would we pledge allegiance to anything if they have not first submitted to God? He says, if they're not under God, why would I pledge allegiance to them? He says, if we don't start saying under God, then we shouldn't even say the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay, kind of a big deal, right? A big thought. Well, Dwight heard the whole thing. So Dwight, at the end of it, says, hey, let's put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, well, he learned that from a pastor. Nonetheless, he says we need to put under God in the Pledge, which he does, 1954. Dwight's also the guy in the U.S. Capitol. They put a prayer chapel so that any senator or congressman, if they want to come pray before they have to do something, they can come talk to God. Uh, this is the stained glass in it, Psalm 16:1. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. George Washington kneeling in prayer. This is what congressmen can see now. Not all of them go there, but they can. 1956, he puts in God we trust on the currency. In 1956, he also makes in God we trust our national model. Dwight does an awful lot as president pointing to God. But, but let me remind you why. Before he was president, he says, there's something I want to help change. He says, our world is becoming too secular. Now, this was 70 years ago. He says we're becoming too secular. I can look today and go, we're really too secular, right? I mean, we can see it around us, but here's my question is, why are we secular? And you know what's interesting? The world hasn't changed. The world has always been the world. You know, the only thing I could argue that's really changed is Christians no longer are living like Christians like we should. Right? And why don't we? Well, I would argue because we really don't know the Bible very well. Where Christians don't know what truth is. And I'm saying Christians, big picture, because 74% of Americans claim to be Christian. Okay? Do three out of every four people you meet look like Jesus? No. <laughs> right? Why? Because we, we don't even know what Jesus is like anymore. We don't read the Bible. Do you know only 14% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis? In fact, far fewer have even read the Bible cover to cover. And this one's kind of crazy to me. Because how could we base our life on a religion based on a book that we've never read? Like, how silly would it be if I said, you know what? I base my life on A Kill a Mockingbird. I've never read it, but I heard it was a good book. <laughs> like, that would just be ridiculous. And yet Christians do it with the Bible all the time. Right? 
let me, let me challenge you. If you've never read the Bible, you ought to make a commitment. If you will read 3.1 chapters a day, you can read the entire Bible in a year. That's 10 or 15 minutes a day. That's doable. You can do that. And by the way, if you've read it, you ought to read it again. And you ought to make a commitment. Every year I'm going to read through the Bible. Why? Because God speaks. And God will speak through his word. God will reveal truth. It doesn't matter if you've read the Bible 15 times. God is big enough. He can still show you new truth. And this is where we ought to be thinking different. See, ultimately, we ought to read the Bible to have the thoughts of Christ and to live like Christ. But, you know, if we, if we look at where this is applied, even, even in culture, do you know only 4% of millennials have a biblical worldview? Now, for their parents, it's like 9%. So don't get too cocky, right? You're not that much better, okay? But, but in general, we don't know the Bible very well anymore, and it's crazy because one of the things that I can point to in our nation, the, the better a nation follows the Bible, the better that nation does. And this is not subjective. This is actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in Psalms 33, 12, blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're in Ethiopia, if you're in Argentina, if you're in Sudan, if you're in America. If you do what God's word says, right, the Bible says you enjoy God's blessing. Now, we can say the same thing for our marriages, for our families, for our jobs. This is truth for us, and this is where we have to, as Christians, think different. Now, I've only touched the tip of the iceberg. If you guys want to know more, we have a website, wallbuilders.com. Would definitely encourage you guys to check out lots of information there. But let me just close by challenging us. What our culture needs is a restoration of truth. But, But you understand, God's revealed truth in his word. The world doesn't read the Bible. It's got to be Christians. God's given us a solution. Guys, it's never been a better time to be a Christian. Never been a better time to be a Christian because the world has never been so desperate for answers that God's given to us. But if we're going to present the answers, we have to study the word of God to know the answers so we then can live outside the walls. And in love, we can present truth so that people can be set free. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear how this message ministered to you. Feel free to let us know on the Connect tab of the House Church app. We hope you have a great week.